Hello, my name is Alora Osborne, and I'm a junior at Harvard College studying history with an unofficial but focus on Indigenous studies, jointly with social anthropology. Today, Sean Littlehorn and I will be starting a podcast that discusses Indigenous rights across the board. We are so excited to have you here listening with us and working with us as we fight and offer a platform to various voices and issues that surround Indigenous peoples, not only nationally but internationally. First thing I would like to do before we get started with this episode is an acknowledgement of land and people. So Harvard University is located on the traditional and ancestral land of the Massachusetts, the original inhabitants of what is now known as Boston and Cambridge. We pay respect to the people of the Massachusetts tribe, past and present, and honor the land itself, which remains sacred to the Massachusetts people. Thank you all so much for listening, and now I will pass it on over to Sean to introduce himself before we get started with today's episode. Uh, my name is Sean Littlehorn. I'm coming to you from Prisoner of War Camp 334, also known as the Aglala Lakota Nation and the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation uh, in the confines of uh, departments of South Dakota. Um, Location-wise, I am the Executive Director of the Indigenous Peoples Movement and the Red Road Institute, as well as the uh, Comms and Development Director for the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe Section 17 uh, Seeds Development. And so um, my, my real passion is just sharing, um, sharing our, our situations that we have today, uh, sharing things that most of our allies really don't know, because the truth is, is that it has strategically and intentionally um, been a, a gap put in between us so that we can't uh, work together to better these situations. So thank you so much for, for having me on this podcast, and I'm looking so forward to having these conversations. Yes, thank you, and thank you for all your hard work. Um, it's been an honor speaking with you previously, and I'm just so excited for this opportunity and like this ability to raise awareness. And today we are talking, I mean, all these all these topics are going to be heavy um, topics. You know, there's nothing easy to nothing easy about it, but it's important stuff that, you know, you should be listening to and you should be educating yourself around. And, you know, I'm just going to pass it off to Sean, um, but we're going to be talking about the kidnapping and stealing of indigenous children, as well as the history of um, like boarding schools, the like Indian boarding schools, as well as Sean's personal experience within these structures, as well as his family's experiences. Absolutely. Well, you know, I think a good place to start, uh, one that we've talked about, is really going back a little bit before we can kind of get to the present day and understanding that the struggles that we're facing today, these are not his, just historic structures, uh, struggles. Although we did have them historically, these are things that we're still fighting today. And of course, many of you know that it started with colonization, um, you know, the process in which the uh, the people came to this country, began to uh, set out their agendas and their rules. And the best way to to handle that was to uh, to, as they used to say, they had an Indian problem. So how do we get rid of the Indians? And the first thought was, well, we can we can we can do this by by fighting and by war. And for for many tribes that worked, um, you know, they had a lot of success. And of course, we know the the relocation acts and different things that were signed into place where uh, people were were promised that if you move to what is now Oklahoma, that we'll never expand any further than that. Like this, as far as we're going to go, you're going to have your peaceful life. You can still be, you know, you can still be an Indian uh, where you are. And that was the the perspective that they laid out. 
Um, but that life didn't that didn't go over for for many tribes. And I think a lot of people are under the assumption that, you know, much like the civilized tribes, the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, uh, the Seminole and the Creek that that, you know, did move to that area. Well, where I'm at is in the, the Plains area and the Plains tribes. Um, you know, we were not, we were not, we, we moved with the Buffalo. Uh, we lived off the Buffalo. And so because of that, um, we were not ready to give up what we call, uh, our Lakota liberation. We were not willing to give up our life living on Unchimaka, grandmother earth, our connection to the earth, the freedom that we felt, uh, the right to raise our families, how we wanted to raise our families. And we weren't ready to get out to that. And so as the United States began to expand West, um, they ran into, again, what they called, in their words, the Indian problem, uh, that they were trying to run railroads and everything else through our area, and we weren't letting it happen. And so a war broke out. And us with uh, other tribes, including the uh, the Arapaho and the Northern Cheyenne, uh, went into a two-year war with the United States of America, uh, the Red Clouds War of 1866 to 1868. And during those war, um, the they again we were we were very successful in those those war we were having a lot of success so it came to the place that the united states came to us and they asked for the treaty and they said look we we don't we need to expand west and and we um we we need you to we need to stop being at war with you because it's not going the way we thought it would go and um so let's sign this treaty and so we signed the fort laramie treaty and that was the treaty that led to our people going to reservations. And on those reservations, we were, we were promised healthcare. We were promised education. We were promised, uh, since we were leaving the Buffalo that we'd had necessary food supplies and things of that nature. But as it happens so many times, um, when dealing with, uh, treaties and has happened throughout history, it didn't take much, just a gold rush in, 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 in the, uh, Black Hills for those treaties to be broken. And so when they realized, you know, the original thing that was written is that when we put them on reservations, eventually they'll die out there. But we didn't. We actually began to grow and begin to uh, increase in population. So they decided that did not work. So they were going to start assimilation. And that was to, to take children forcibly from their homes. And the first person to create the first leader of this Carlisle Indian School, the first one, was a man by the name of Richard Pratt. Now, you might wonder if you don't know Richard Pratt, what was his background that made him to be this great educational leader. Well, he was not a teacher. He was not a professor. He actually was the leader of a prisoner of war camp over in the area of the Apache. And what he had learned, he believed, is that you could kill the Indian inside of them and help them to become good citizens. And so these schools were created with that purpose. These schools were created with the purpose to kill the Indian and save the man. And so they begin to forcibly begin to take children from their parents, many of them just snatching them from their arms or 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 fears of, you know, there, there's uh, the the um, the Hopi, for instance, had had hundreds of people put in Alcatraz prison because they didn't want their children to go to these boarding schools forcibly. And when they arrived at the boarding schools, the life that they knew certainly began to die. Because the moment that they arrived, their hair was cut. For you that are not familiar, for, for many of us, for many of us tribes and many of us bands within these tribes, our hair is a connection to our spirituality. Our hair is a connection to the earth. It is a connection 
to our way of life. It is a it is a sign of our 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 outreach and connection to everything around us. Matakio Yasi, we are all related. And so they would cut our hair. And then we would be given a name. And many times not even names. Sometimes they just gave them numbers. You're number 21. And that would be your number throughout your your academic career. You no longer had an identity. You were number one. Or they would change their traditional name. And they would give them an English name so that 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 would fit more of who they were supposed to become. And then they would have their language stripped from them. They would have their spirituality stripped from them. And it's not like they would say, okay, you need to learn English because this is going to be an English speaking society. I mean, to me, that would be understandable, right? Because the reality is anybody that speaks two languages is probably better off than a person that speaks one language. If you're able to communicate to more crowds, that's a good thing. But that wasn't what they did. They would actually beat you if you spoke your native language. I talked to my grandmother on this subject, and it's a hard subject. Many of our Many of our elders cannot talk about it because it is, it's, it's so much pain for them. And one of the few times she was able to talk to me about it, she told me about experience that she had at four years old when she was first brought to the school. And she's been brought to the school. And remember, she only spoke Lakota. That's all the only language that she, know, she knew. And so they begin to speak to her in English. And as they begin to speak to her in English, she wouldn't know what they were saying. So she would respond in Lakota. And every time she would respond in Lakota, they would physically abuse her. And they not only would physically abuse her, they would put her in this little cellar, much like a, a, a closed down meat locker, if you will. And they would put her in the cellar in the pitch dark and understand that 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 my Unchi, my grandmother, she did not know why she was there. She did not know what she did wrong. She didn't know what they were communicating. She just knew that she was being punished for whatever reason, for being evil and for being wrong. And this was the way that continued to the point that uh, it, it really, it began to, our, our, our people back home, uh, the people that lasted when their children, if they did come back home and they came back home, they didn't speak Lakota anymore like their parents. It disrupted our family structure. And even more than that, it hindered the future generation's family structure. Because while at those schools, the majority of those children were sexually assaulted by mainly, uh, mainly ran by uh, Catholic churches, mainly by priests and, and nuns. And they would be sexually assaulted. And when you take a person from their family and the only parents they know are the nuns and the priests that sexually assault them and beat them, what kind of, what kind of parent does that parent become? Right. Because they don't know anything. You understand that corporal punishment was not a part of the Lakota way prior to calling, but prior to assimilation schools. In fact, the first time Sitting Bull saw a person spanking their children, his mind was blown. He could not believe that a parent would hit their child because he, in our way of life, our, our grandmothers and our mothers in the early years, we had times actually the father would have times and the mother and grandmothers have time. But if a child is crying, the grandmother and mother would come to them and they would even start crying at times because uh, to, to show their kids their, their connection and, and their love for them. But see, our society now tells us, for instance, for a young boy, if you want that boy to become a man, you got to physically discipline him. But think about this. We raised the greatest warriors there ever were, Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse, Red Cloud. And they had never been spanked as a child. But that that 
way of life began to enter into our community. Sexual abuse, physical abuse, all of the things that had been foreign to us before began to enter into our lives. Well, I want to, I don't want to take too long on this and get us to place. I apologize for that. But in 1973, change really began to come to a front. I want you to know that in 1973, actually to 1978, not only was it legal to take a native child from their parents, it was encouraged. And on top of that, it was illegal for us to have any spirituality. If we prayed, if there were two or three that prayed, we could literally be locked in federal prison. We, the people, never meant all the people. Certainly for us as indigenous people to this land, we were not allowed the freedom of religion. We were not allowed the uh, the the freedom to to just practice spirituality as who we were. So in 1973, just about five miles from where I am, the American Indian movement had really begun to rise to prominence. Great leaders like Madonna Thunderhawk, Russell Means, Dennis Banks. And they came down thinking it was just going to be a, a one-day meeting. They'd been asked to come here by members of the tribe. And so when they arrived, actually federal agents and National Guard was already here waiting for them. And what as happened was a 72 day standoff that the American Indian movement for 72 days were trapped around by this military force and fighting for their lives and literally sacrificing lives so that my generation would be able to have life, have spirituality from that came the 1978 uh, Indian child welfare act and the Indian freedom religious act. And I say that to say this, um, the Indian child welfare act is a federal law that was placed to combat the, the damage of boarding schools. It was put into place that says that you are not allowed federally, uh, that a, a institution cannot come in and take a native child from a native home um, without permission. They have to have permission from both the parent or if the parents are gone or not uh, uh, a conflict of interest, then the tribe has to sign off on it. But what we're going to talk about today is the fact that even though this has been federal law since 1978 and surprisingly and thankfully upheld in the uh, upheld by the Supreme Court this past uh, this past cycle, the Indian Child Welfare Act, Welfare Act is being abused to the highest level. And I, I'm going to pass it back now. I, I'm sorry for that longer introduction, but I think people need to know what it is that we faced and what we're still facing today. 100%. Like, thank you so much for sharing that. And I mean, you're right. Like, this background information is so important to understand the start of this, right? And then how it's continued throughout time. Like, oftentimes when we think of history or we think of like the, the Indian boarding schools, we're like, oh, that's, that's an ended event, right? It's no longer like seen today, but it's like, no, even though sure that has ended in itself, there have been manifestations of it that are still heavily impacting indigenous communities today. And, you know, that's what we're here to talk about is how this is not a past tense problem. It's it's a current problem. And so, if I mean, I know that you have some experience around like the family, the family services and child protective services taking and stealing indigenous children just for being indigenous, like not like there's harm towards them, but just the indigenous aspects of them. And I mean, if you would be, you know, willing and honored to share your I mean, if you'd be willing to share your story, we'd be more than honored to hear it like the firsthand kind of experiences of someone who has dealt with this and it's in, in in the you know in today right like not this is not generations ago this is you know you're you're currently alive right you are young like this is something that you you've realized and experienced yeah and unfortunately um 
the children all around me today are still experiencing. So mm -hmm. um, I hate to date myself, but I was born in 1979, which was after the, the introduction of the Indian Child Welfare Act. But the problem with the Indian Child Welfare Act is while in theory it is great, it is proper and it is needed because we don't, we have to be realistic within our communities, our tribal communities. We do have problems. And most of those do are, are, are passed down through boarding schools, but there are times that a child needs to be removed from their home. Um, but that should not be without representation. And that should surely not be without the consult of the sovereign nation um, that that child resides in and is a, is a citizen of. So in my own personal experience, um, I was, I was born in Oklahoma. Um, my, my, my father is full blood Lakota. My mother is primarily Choctaw. And so my father had been working there. My mother was there as part of the Choctaw nation. And, um, I was born and there was a, um, there was an accusation of drug use that was made against my mother. And nobody ever came and told her this. There were never no court cases to talk over this, and there was never surely representation for her to share her side of the story or or to to even um, have a side of the story. And so the day that I was born, June 6, without any uh, knowledge, without any um, court orders being handled to her, um, they I came in, they they ran tests and neither one of us had drugs in our system. Um, neither one of us had had been involved. And in, so if there was drug use, it was prior to uh, uh, prior to pregnancy. And and I for, as far as I know, there was not. Well, even with that, they came, and they took me directly from my mother and I wouldn't see her again for 13 years. Um, she never had a court case to try to get me back. Uh, she would try to find me in the system. And, and as we'll talk about later, this is something it's a huge loophole. There really is no system to monitor us as, as tribal citizens the way others have. And so they took me and they placed me with a military family. And at three years old, they got divorced and they neither one of them wanted to take the responsibility of having me. So they put me back into the system and I began to float from place to place year after year. And what I will say that I am so grateful for is that. My story has ended much different or is going at least in a different direction than most people in that situation, not because of something great that I caused to happen, but I was born with great athletic ability. So when I was 15 years old, I was homeless. Uh, I was trying to get myself out of the system. There had been a school that had seen me play uh, basketball the year prior as a freshman, and I had 40 plus points in that game, and they found out about my situation. And they came in and they offered me a little trailer to live in, a, a good school to go to. And from that, my academic career began to take off. I was able to sign a, a scholarship to play football at Jacksonville State University. And and my my life is very different because I am I was at that time 6'3 and 220 pounds. Had I been 5'8 and a uh, and 220 pounds, my life would be very different. I'd probably be like many of my relatives who are on drugs and who are who are trapped to the system and trapped on the system. But that was my experience. And during those years that I didn't mention where, where the amount of, of emotional and physical abuse that no person should ever have to endure. If you ever meet me in person and you talk to me on the right side, I cannot hear you because when I was nine, 
one of them hit me in the head with a shotgun and removed the bone, uh, removed the bone from the eardrum. And because of that, you know, I've always, always been, you know, very, uh, have a very difficult time hearing. These are the experiences. Thankfully, I was not sexually abused, which is very, very much so the cause for many of our children in this system today. But I was physically abused. I was mostly abused. All of these things. And, and nobody within my tribe could do anything. Nobody within my family could do anything because this system has been rigged against our people in a very systematic way that we'll talk out through, throughout this uh, this podcast. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I feel like it's hard. It's hard to say anything. You know, it's like I I can't imagine experiencing that to the extent in which you did. And I guess what I was curious about was, you know, you said that you moved around a lot, and how like how often like were you with like fellow like indigenous peoples, whether it was people like from your own tribe or from like various ones, or were they always non-indigenous? I had never met, I had never met anybody that, that was at least, let's put it at this time, at least was a tribal citizen. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to take the indigenous out of, of, of our, our brothers from mm-hmm. the other side and sisters from mm-hmm. the other side of the border or, uh, you know, but as mm-hmm. far as people who were culturally connected in any way, I never met a single person until I was an adult. And, and that was the reality. And so I moved very different places, right? So part of this is, uh, they ship you to keep you out of the, the, the whereabout. They ship you to very vastly different places. So I spent time in the inner city of Detroit. I spent time in, in Arizona. I spent time in, in Alabama and Alabama was actually where I ended up, um, pulling myself out of the system through, through the private school and being able to go there and play sports and get an education. Um, so, uh, but up until 15, uh, I had never went to the same school two years in a row. And I never lived in the same house out once after three. I never lived in the same home uh, more than one year. And, and that's a hard thing to, to never be connected to anybody. Do you know that I was, it was not until I was sharing this with somebody the other day. It was not until I was in that high school. And, and um, thankfully, you know, many of those treated me like their child. It, I was, I was 17 years old before I'd ever heard a man tell me they love me like that. That's just not a, uh, I, I, that's not a healthy way for an individual. There's no way you can tell me I'm better off by being shipped around as a commodity and people collecting checks off of me, um, and being abused than I would have been to be within my own tribe and my own culture. And this, I think is hard for some people to understand. And I'll be honest with you. I did not understand it until I moved back to my, to, to, to my home, my home, uh, area in the Aglala Lakota Nation. We as an indigenous people, and I, I don't want to minimize other people's because I'm sh- they might as well, but as indigenous people, we are not past tense. We are current and we have a culture. We have a way of life. We have a spirituality. We have our Lakota values that we, we cherish, that we live every day. We have languages that we speak. And when you are disconnected completely from something that is in your spiritual and historical DNA, you never feel like you belong, no matter how much you try. You never feel like, no matter, even when I did experience love at the end of those years, I never felt like I belonged. I always felt unworthy because who I was created to be, I was forbidden to be. And just like my grandmother, even though it was done through this system, I was forbidden to be Lakota. But the first time that my foot touched my homelands and my my, I went to my first sweat and my first ceremony and I, and I, I connected to my relatives for the first time. 
thankfully they didn't treat me like a wayward son. They knew that I was the majority now, not the minority. Most of our people have been affected by this system. In fact, I'll say as far as boarding schools go, you've never met a Native American that has not in some point in his family tree been affected by it negatively and carried at least not knowingly even sometimes some of the baggage from that. So it wasn't until I connected back to my people that I ever felt worthy. I always tried to earn people's love and attention. And that's a that's a sad thing to think about in, in hindsight. And it's why I fight every single day. You know, we've had a chance to talk with the indigenous people's movement, Red Road. I fight every day to try to protect our most vulnerable because that's the least. I call it when we do things in our community, like, you know, I was able to raise $50,000 last year for heaters and blankets because most of our people don't have basic heating necessity. And I don't call it charity or I call it Wopula, Wopula, Wopula. Wopula is our word for thank you. And me, anything I give back to my people is me saying Wopula for what you're doing for my family as we reverse this curse of assimilation. But it 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 is a it's a hard life for, for for those who are stranded with no purpose and no sense of being and connection. And that's not even sometimes the people whose home they're in. They try, but we have a different connection to to our our in our in our DNA, and we just never feel it. Yeah, I can't imagine, you know, being completely removed and cut off from, you know, family, from, you know, spiritual, like, beliefs and historical, like, understandings. And, like, you know, during this time, like, maybe when you weren't able to, like, you were never, like, physically with, right, um, another, like, person culturally associated with the tribe. Like, were you ever able to connect or, like, contact people of, um, like, in, like, in, whether it's your tribal nation or other ones? I know you mentioned that you were able to see your mom when you were 13 or, like, meet her for the first time at least. So, like, do you think that you had, like, were you able to have any kind of connection or communication with kind of indigenous people in general? No, um, because you're you're completely cut off from it, right? It's the same process. They're not, and we'll talk about that system and how they do it, but it's the same process. It's to, it's to separate you from your way of life. And so I did know, I did meet my, I didn't meet my father until I was in my thirties, um, but I did get to meet my mother and I did get to meet my uh, maternal grandmother. And again, she is, uh, she is Choctaw. And so she tried to teach me a few words, right? Uh, like, you know, just basic greeting things. But she also was a victim of boarding schools. And so because of that, she had very little knowledge left. The, the, the one of the most successful and yet horrific initiatives that the United States of America has ever instituted at any level success wise was assimilation school. If the goal was to kill our language, our spirituality and our connection for the majority of our people, that is exactly what happened. And I am thankful for my relatives, my ancestors who fought to keep whatever they could alive, because we're seeing a revival and a rejuvenation of these things in our, in our, especially in our Lakota uh, communities. But our grandparents and great grandparents are, are, are wounded people. They are people who don't know how to, for the most part, do not know how to express their emotions. They do not know how to conversate about their pain because they were taught that they are evil and they are bad. And if that's all you've ever known, sometimes that might be all you'll ever be if something else doesn't intervene. Yeah. I mean, you can definitely see like the lasting impacts of generational trauma, especially coming, coming through like, you know, elders and like ancestors who did experience the traumas and the horrors of the assimilation schools and had the lasting effect, not only on them, but then of course, as it trickles down and, I mean, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking 
thing. And especially because, I mean, it's not necessarily ending. I mean, the way that you describe this complete cutoff of culture, you know, just through your experience in the, in, within family services, I mean, it's, I mean, sure, you're not going to a physical, like, same structure and location, right, with other Indigenous children who've been stolen, but the idea and the heart of the boarding schools are still so alive today, just through the acts of um, this, like, of CPS and Child Services. And, like, I know that you mentioned that, you know, of course, it still goes on today, and I mean, if you want to talk a bit about also the, the impacts, you know, even more recently, like even more like current, right, than not just your experiences, but of course, the the current fears and the current horrors going on now for children who are still experiencing this and the children who, like, unless we can end this, will will experience it. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I do want to say before, before that, just kind of prerequisite mm-hmm. is that, um, you know, I always had a lot of admiration, not for colonizers as much the early colonizers but for immigrants i also that was like a really brave thing to do to to leave the world that you knew and to come to a new world hoping for a better life for your family like i always i always admire that you know a lot of like for instance the 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 irish during the potato famine right like people people giving up all of these things they had to just try to do something better for their family but that's not what happened to our people they got to come over with their children and their wives. What happened with ours is you took a child who knew nothing. You picked them up and you dropped, you might as well have dropped them off over in another continent because that's how foreign that world was going to be to that child. And I would love to say that 1978 came around and the Indian Child Welfare Act came into place and all of a sudden healing began to take place. And, and you know, like that's kind of the thing that we're looking for, like, to start that healing process because we can't change history. How can we get to a healing place? The problem is, is that in many areas, this same process is taking place. I believe we've talked about this together. You know, a lot of people say that slavery was abolished. Slavery was never abolished. It was recodified to bring in the, the, into the judicial system, right? Um, and, and the, the concept, you know, it, it's very clear as it talks about the change from that happening. The same is true with boarding schools. Boarding schools have not gone away. They just changed their name. They are now Child Protective Services. And while ICWA, and there are some really great people out there that work in ICWA departments, ICWA, number one, is the only major federal law that is not audited or overseen by anybody. It is completely just there. And because of that, it is almost has no funding to it. So even the people who want to do right within the ICWA Child Protection Services Department have a hard time doing so. And, you know, that is that is part of the problem itself. And so there are good people there and there are states. I will say that I have been encouraged if you haven't followed this past year, the uh, Supreme Court case against uh, uh, the uh, Brecken and versus Deb Holland case where uh, a Navajo child had been taken, uh, was in Texas, they had proper family. And then lo and behold, the state general who never gets involved with this files a, a federal lawsuit against Deb Holland and says ICWA is racist toward white people. That it is reverse racism to say that I can't have a child because I'm not indigenous. It's reverse racism, they said, and, and took it to the Supreme Court. And we were fearful it was going to get overturned because of the inconsistencies we have seen in Indian law within within the Supreme Court. And so, um, you know, just, just wild to think about. Thankfully, again, they, 
they upheld that. But but why did he get involved? And the reason he got involved and his the, the family's lawyers in this case, the Brecken family's lawyers in this case, were actually the top lawyers for Exxon, Chevron, and Mobile. These are oil lawyers involved in child protection care. Why? Because if they could get ICWA overturned, if they could say that we don't have a right to our children because it's a race, then they can then come take our tribal land and say it's because of a it's a race. They don't have special privilege to it, and they can extract the the different minerals and things they want to from our that tribal sovereignty fights to stop. And so again, in many states, and and I would say there are several that are that are in bad shape, but maybe none as bad as the one that I live in, and that's South Dakota. South Dakota. Native children make up only 15% of the child population. So of the children that are here, they're only 15%. Yet they are at 56% as of last year of the children that are in foster care. So you're only 15%, but you're almost 60%. That Those numbers don't add up. Those numbers do not work. But here's where it gets real interesting or, or real heartbreaking, if you will is that even though the Indian Child Welfare Act tells us that you cannot take a native child from a native home or tribal citizen from a tribal home without certain consents in place, they have completely refused to follow any of those protocols to the point that of those children that are in child protective services, 90% are placed in non-native homes. Even though there are tribal foster homes standing ready and willing, there are foster parents ready and willing, 90% of all the children that are illegally taken from their parents without tribal consent are put into non-native uh, homes, predominantly because in South Dakota, 90% of those into white homes. And that process is what's even more heartbreaking because here's what happens. I was able to go up with uh, Unchi Madonna Thunderhawk that I mentioned her name earlier. She, at 85 years old, has created a grandmother's group that is fighting to get Cheyenne River uh, Reservation, where she lives, their own tribally controlled CPS system instead of the state controlled CPS system. And they've made a lot of headway and hopefully uh, they've even built homes to, to for housing of children and things of that nature. But she asked me to come up and document cases of children that had came through there and what their experiences were. And I knew my experience, but uh, I wanted to hear theirs as well and video and document those for their for their reports. And person after person. Over over uh, it was 13 straight hours and we eventually had to cut it off of people coming in to tell their stories and each one of those were stories that could have been avoided and should have never happened. For instance, there was a a, a grandmother, and, and the state of South Dakota does not recognize grandmothers as viable options for adoption, which is just absurd to me uh, and goes against our cultural beliefs. But the grandmother has a child that uh, gets diagnosed with um, autism. And so she thinks she's doing the right thing. She goes down to CPS and she's like, hey, I hear you have resources that can help me bet, you know, best um, help deal with my, my grandson's needs. And they said, Oh, sure. Yeah. I'll tell you what, give us your address and we'll, we'll get back to you. That night they came and took her child from her 
and told her that his condition made it where she was not viable enough to take care of him as, as a parent. No case, no representation. She, they said, here, you can call this number. She calls it the next day, and they say, yeah, they moved him down to the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. He's down, he's down there. So she calls down there. She's trying to get a hold. Nobody calls, uh, answers. They call her back the next day. And they say, oh, no, they've, moved, they've now moved him to Sioux Falls, we believe. That was eight years ago. She still cannot find her grandson. Not only did they take her, but they said, we're going to move and you're not even going to be able to have a relationship with your grandchild that you were trying to raise because we know what's best, perhaps. And story after story was like that. Physical abuse, sexual abuse, mental abuse, emotional abuse, being told you're, you know, being told how inferior you were. You see, I, I know a lot of people are listening, say he's got to be exaggerating. Just go Google uh, Grand Gateway Hotel right outside just the, the closest city to, to where I live in Aglala in Rapid City, uh, home of the Black Hills, where uh, many will know Mount Rushmore being at. There was a hotel there that publicly stated that they would no longer serve Indians because they couldn't tell the good Indians from the bad Indians. That's the environment we still live in in 2023. We still are looked at as inferior in our own homes, in our own lands. And so I heard story after story about this. So then I have to ask the question, why? What, what does, we know why they, the United States government in, in conjunction with the, the, the Catholic Church, we know why they started boarding schools. We know it's wrong, but we know why they did it. Why is CPS doing this? And I found an initial investigation um, about 12 years ago that was put together by the public broadcast uh, network. And they went in and they investigated South Dakota and they found out that at that time, South Dakota would receive $72,000 per native child in a non-native home from the federal government every year that they were in that home. And that if they were in there 10 years, and then that's 10 years of that $72,000 they could get. Because native children in South Dakota, according to the federal government, are considered special needs regardless of where they come from. They're considered special needs because of the poverty level of the the, the reservations that they live on. And because they're considered, uh, or they're even descendants, they can even live in Rapid or something like that, and the same thing applies. So they're considered to be special needs because of the economic system that, by the way, the United States created and is responsible for over-regulating and keeping in that condition. So they take them from their children and they profit. In fact, to the point that I was able to find out through our research with the Indigenous Peoples Movement, that the minimum number, there's a higher number, but I'm only going to share the minimum number. The minimum number that the state of South Dakota receives for a native child being at a non-native home, which is 90%, is $94,000 a year. That's the lowest number. So if they have that child in, in CPS for 10 years, that child is going to make the state of South Dakota a million federal dollars, one child. And it becomes financial gain. And as we investigate this, we find that the state of South Dakota is plenty aware of this. In fact, it was told to me by uh, one of their uh, state senators that, that sits on their economic panel that the three number one money makers in South Dakota, number three is tourism, the tax money that they get off tourism coming through places like the Badlands, 
Mount Rushmore, whatever it might be. Number two is cattle. We're the top, I think we're still the top cattle per person place in the world. I think there's about two, or in the United States, I think there's about two and a half cattle per person in the state of South Dakota and the revenue that they are able to gain through different taxes on that. Number one is the abduction, illegal abduction of native children, putting them into non-native homes. And to, to put a perspective on that, now remember, South Dakota is not a big state population-wide. We had less than a million pe- people population-wide. Every single year, over 700 new children are taken from their families, not including the ones that are already in the system making the money. Over 700 every year are put into this system and are, are the financial gain and the property of the state of South Dakota, and most of the time without representation. Uh, this was heightened during COVID. They were taking people and and saying that you can't bring a lawyer into the into the case, which is a federal that is a federal violation to not allow somebody to have representation in the case. But because of numbers wise, you have to come to this court case alone. What we found is is that many, many, and almost the majority, forty seven percent of people who were given a case and a chance to plead their case, forty seven percent of those last over the last three years. 47% the offices were over, the the, the uh, uh, case was handled over three hours away. So a six-hour round trip that you've got to be able to, one, afford to get to, uh, two, get the proper notification for and hope that you get for, and then three, try to find a way to have any representation within that case. That is kill the Indian, save the man in 2023. Yeah. I mean, you're a hundred percent correct. And it's, I mean, it's, it's so terrifying and disgusting to see that this is still a reality. And I mean, I I think this, I think this goes to show with like a lot of the issues, like we're going to talk about, like not in this podcast necessarily, but in future ones of how like there have been like seemingly um, bills or whatever things passed like in supposed support of indigenous rights, but then essentially they just kind of move over, move over the wrongdoings to some to some other structure or some other um you know bureaucratic setup by the government and in this case it's the movement of assimilation schools to what we know of as child protective services and it's just disgusting how they are they're they're commodifying indigenous children they're treating them as just oh they're just a means of revenue from the state and it's horrifying to hear that and it's horrifying that they are allowing these children to be abused just to make money off of them and that's disgusting that's... Yeah, and you hear the word systematic oppression a lot, right? And mm-hmm. and 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 it's became different political sides. It's some some like the word, some have made it like the boogeyman word that means a whole lot of different things. But let me show you the the very definition of systematic oppression. So you come in and legally take our children, which is federal violation, but nobody can stop you. You come in, you take our children, with, and don't give the parents any representation or the grandparents any ability to fight this. And you take and you place them in non-native homes where they're separated from their culture, their way of life, and their family. And what I think is important to note about that is, why are they not just putting those people into tribal homes and, and investing into the tribal communities? Because here's the thing, more times than not, the, almost the, uh, I'd have to see the statistics this year, but I know in re- uh, previous years, the number one reason cited was poverty, financial conditions. Nobody should ever lose their children because of poverty 
in the United States of America. I don't care what race you are. And if poverty is the problem, how come you're, you, if, if, if an aunt is able to step up and take care of the child or if an, uh, or a grandmother or somebody in the family is able to uh, step up and take the child, how come they don't get the same funding that the non-native gets by removing them from their home? What? It's systematically designed to be this way. So what happens is now you've got an aunt who's got maybe, let's say she has two children and she wants to take other two children. Now all of her bills have doubled and very little help coming in because she is a tribal citizen. If she wasn't a tribal citizen, she could get all of these funds that they pour into their, their, their own, uh, their own local economy. That is systematic oppression at its finest, a system designed to, to hinder and to hold down a people. And that's what we face every single day in South Dakota. And that's why these type of, of platforms, thank you so much. These type of platforms are what's going to bring the change because we cannot change this by ourselves. We need your help. We need your allyship standing with us for the United States of America. One of my favorite quotes, and I'll, I'll, I'll um, stop on that point, is, was by Russell Means, again, one of our great activists of all times. He was a person that, that uh, was a part of many of the things that led to change through the American Indian Movement for our people. And he said, the only thing I've ever been shot for, the only thing I've ever been stabbed for, the only thing I've ever been beaten and thrown in jail for was to ask and to demand that the United States of America live up to their own laws. Article 6, Section 2 of the U.S. Constitution says that all treaties are the supreme law of the land. And yet, without people standing with us, we cannot hold the government accountable to follow their own laws. And that in lies the problem of us being able to stop this problem. Definitely. And I, and I feel like we, we really need to address, you know, this, these, these like horrible like acts for what they are. Like, I mean, I feel like it goes past this idea of systemic oppression, right? Like this is, this is systemic genocide, right? This is, I mean, you could call it cultural genocide, but cultural genocide is just genocide. And right. I mean, that, that is what it is. And I think people don't realize how serious and how deadly this is in the sense of it's killing children, um, killing their autonomy and their agency as they're violated in these abusive homes. Um, it's killing the culture and like the cultural connection that, you know, indigenous people have with each other and with the land and with their history. I mean, it's, it's, it's horrible that the U S government is by a means of not actually implemented not by not actually enacting right and um you know like following through with their own laws is allowing for the you know elimination of a people's and, and you said, yeah you said two things that are really really important and i thank you for bringing those up mm -hmm. that is number one they're outside of the financial gain of the states why is the federal government not stepped up and done more to 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 fund to help to most importantly, to hold accountable their own federal laws. Why have they not done more to do that? And, you know, there's a saying we've all heard, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And the truth is that this is just like blood quantum. For you that are not familiar with blood quantum, there are three people or three things that are counted by blood quantum, horses, dogs, and Indians. We are required to give our blood quantum to prove that we are native enough. And once it drops under that blood quantum, 
then we're no longer native enough. And that level is different at different places. Um, thankfully, some tribes have fought to get that removed. But, you know, you got to it. It, you got to carry around a card that says how much Indian you are, the CDIB, the, the certificate of uh, Indian blood, right? Like I have to prove, and not only that, they, they, they cut it in corners, right? Like being a Lakota person, if you're, if you're a full blood Lakota uh, and you're 50% Aglala and you're 50% Hunkapapa standing rock uh, on your card, you're only 50% because you can only claim one tribe. You cannot be a part of multiple tribes. You can only claim one tribe. So, so why are they doing this? It's clear the same reason they did it the first time around. It's the land. And it's so crazy when you think about it, because most of the problems that we as indigenous people, Native Americans in this country have had since the arrival of colonization could have been avoided. Look at a map sometime and see the population circles. Most of this land is not even populated. We could have lived in harmony with one another. And that was our goal, at least on our side. Uh, uh, you know, from the beginning to live in harmony with one another. But the, the, the amount of resources and that are the, uh, you know, there's, there's different gauges of it, 30 to 40%, even though we're not a big land population wise, 30, 40% of all the resources, uh, but between, you know, uh, um, oil and uranium and these things are, are on tribal lands. So now, they got to get those tribal lands. Every one of these court cases is about getting tribal sovereignty removed. And, and if they can get, if they can get our Indian blood, for lack of a better term, the official term, if they can get our Indian blood low enough by mixing us in society with non, uh, non-native people or even people outside of our tribe, if they're able to do that, then at a very close point, they're able to say they don't have enough to, to, to justify being a nation anymore. Give us the land back. <laughs> Here we are, 2023, with all this land. And it's still about the land when it comes down to it. Um, so the states, they instituted because of the financial gain. The federal government turns a blind eye to it because they want the land. Yeah, and I think this is like a great segue. It's a, another conversation we're definitely going to have, right? The Essentially, the, the underlying political motives of you know, the allowing of this to happen and the pipeline, all this stuff. And this is a whole other conversation that we can have that is very relevant, right? Like it leads to understanding even more of why this systemic oppression, why this genocide is is allowed and why it's, you know, you know, not being stopped and that called out for what it is and being acknowledged, you know, in a larger scale thing and why the government's not doing as much as it should um, to actually help and protect indigenous people. And I think that's like a great segue to what, what our like next conversations are going to be around. And, you know, I think that this is just the very tip of the iceberg, of course, you know, it's just one of the plethora of issues that indigenous peoples face today. And not only like the Lakota tribe, but I, I mean, I assume this situation is, is, is something that's also experienced, you know, not even just in the U S alone, like in other countries with indigenous peoples. And it's, it's horrible to see how, they view children as, as, as money signs, right. As just dollars to go towards them to benefit. Um, but it's something that we need to be made aware of and that we need to be thinking about and that like allies need to be thinking about and realizing that the fight for indigenous rights, what is it, what does that encapsulate and how like children's lives have been and will be at stake until we actually do something about this. Um, but I wanted to know, Sean, if you had like any kind of summarizing or concluding thoughts that you wanted to say about like this, this subject of 
the kidnapping and stealing of uh, indigenous children um, and just kind of overall like what we've talked about. Yeah. Thank, and again, thank you so much for this, this platform, right? This is where you are connecting what has to be connected. And that is us with our, with the people who want to do right, but they don't know what's going on and they don't know. I think as we go through this, people are going to be shocked when they actually hear how in this day and time people can come on our tribal land and, and rape and kill our women and not be prosecuted because of the the gray area of tribal sovereignty. But I do want to ask, um, you know, just kind of, I, it's one thing to show a problem and to know about a problem. And it's a, it's another thing to move to action. And I, I would like to see uh, um, pathways for our allies begin to move to action. And so if it's okay, what I would like to share with everybody is if you go to indigenous people's movement.org, indigenous peoples movement.org, uh, there's a tab there that says take action. And underneath that tab, you'll see one that is, uh, you know, different issues that we face, but uh, specifically there is one there that is about addressing the issues that are going on in South Dakota. Uh, we've came of the opinion that we're not going to be able to, to take this out at a nationwide at one time, we're going to have to hit it state by state. And we're going to have to approach it more system, you know, more more strategically that way. And so because of the offenses that we know and the 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 growth of this problem, South Dakota is the place that we're starting. And there are two links there that you'll find once you get there. One says South Dakota resident sign here. And if you're a South Dakota resident, that will go directly to state representatives asking them to pass state laws that holds the South, the state of South Dakota accountable to follow this federal law. That would be a big, big thing if we can get that to happen. But I think the other part, and I think just as if not even more uh, impactful, is the second link that says non-South Dakota residents signed here. And that particular one is going to go to the Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, um, who has been an advocate to help with many indigenous rights uh, during a time there, and also the Department of Justice. We are asking the Department of Justice to come in and investigate the misuse and misappropriation of funds that are supposed to help Native children, but instead go to the benefit and the uh, the growth of the, ec the economy in South Dakota. And so by putting pressure, and we've seen this work, that hotel that I was speaking to you about earlier, we put pressure on them, and now the Department of Justice uh, a few months ago filed a federal lawsuit against them for violating civil rights and denying lodging to people because of their race. We have a time and a window right now that we can see movement, but we need your help. We need you to get involved. So if you can, indigenouspeoplesmovement.org, take action, and you'll see right there where you will be able to, to help us fight for human rights um, and, and, and the protecting of Native children in South Dakota. Yes. And uh, once again, like they are Indigenous Peoples Movement on Instagram. Um, and I assume on all on all platforms is it Indigenous yes, Peoples yes. Movement? Yeah, perfect. Yeah. So please, please give them a follow. Um, you know, that way you can see what's going on in the world, you know, how you can help assist and be an ally while we fight for basic human rights for the Indigenous peoples and just being aware and hopefully share and also raise awareness in general. But Thank you so much for listening. Once again, my name is Alora Osborne. Um, and thank you so much, Sean, for taking the time to come on here and to talk about your experiences, the experience of your family and the experience of the Lakota people. And I'm looking forward to our future conversations.
that hopefully are going to shed light on issues that indigenous peoples are facing that maybe allies or, or people who are soon to be allies don't even know about yet. And so thank you so much for the hard work and it's important work, Sean. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you again. Um, you know, your, your, your passion for human rights, you know, right? Like we have a right for our children to be safe, our women and to be safe, to be able to drink water. That's not filled with uranium. Like these are rights we have. And with, with leaders like you, um, helping bring this to the forefront, we're so thankful. Wopi Latanka. For our outro, we have been granted the usage of Spring to Come by Digging Roots. So I highly recommend you guys listen to this last like 45 seconds of the podcast and also give Digging Roots a check out on Spotify and Apple Music. Thank you. Yeah.